On a day like this, when there's so many people in the room, the reality is that different people are here for different reasons. For some of you in the room today, when it comes to Easter, there would be no other place you would be on Easter morning than at church. For others of you, you're here because, frankly, someone, a friend, a coworker, kept bugging you so much about coming to try out your church, and there was invites and Facebook shares and all that kind of stuff, and finally, enough already, <laughs> you wouldn't say that to them, but I'll, I'll come, I'll come, and you're here, and we're glad that you are. Some of you are here because mom said that you're going to go to church with her on Easter. And if you want to be good with mom, you better listen to what mom says. It's part of being a mom. The reality is, is that many of us probably didn't think about it. Or maybe not as deeply as we should. For some of us, we're not sure why we're here. I mean, isn't that just what you do on Easter? There's maybe some new clothes, uh, potentially, or at least a new tie. Um, there is the Easter eggs, and there's an Easter basket, and there's chocolate bunnies, and there's peeps. Don't forget about the peeps. And then there's, there's going to church, and that's just what you do on Easter. Different people come to Easter services for different reasons. And the truth of the matter is, Different people have different reactions to what we've experienced so far in this service. Let me take for an example the song we sang. It was the second song for today, Oh Happy Day. That was a rocking song, wasn't it? <laughs> it was moving. It's a song that just oozes joy and happiness, and you better stick with them because they're heading somewhere, and we gotta, you know, we gotta be happy. Now, the reality is, is maybe during that song, some of you were thinking, I don't know if my life has ever been this happy. <laughs> that, that when we think about our lives and we try to put songs to it, that most of the time, maybe our lives are somewhere in the middle between ex-ambassadors, I'm a little bit unsteady. And over here on the other end, I'm smashing pumpkins, the world is a vampire. But some, certainly not, oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. How do I get some of that, that, oh, happy day? Because most of the time, on most days, maybe even on Easter Sunday, my life, to be really honest, feels more like that video where there's a lot of empties that I'm navigating through and trying to get through and trying to survive and trying to exist. I'd like some, oh, happy day, but I'm not feeling it right now. So far in our time together today, we've been appealing to your heart. And that's a good thing. I mean, you cannot hear the greatest message there ever was. And the message is this, that heaven is ours after this life as a gift and not be emotional about it. But for the rest of this message, I'm recognizing that there could be skeptics in the room. I'm recognizing that there are people in this room that um, wonder what they believe or have wonder about their beliefs. So for the rest of the service, what I'd like to do is primarily speak 
to your minds. We've spoken to your heart. I want to I speak to your minds for a moment. Because here's what I want you to recognize. That Easter isn't about ignoring reality and putting a nice little bow on something that otherwise should not be that way. It's about understanding reality. You know, um, you know what a lot of people think, and maybe you've been one of them. Um, people think and have taught that a belief in God, a God, or in a belief in religion or being a part of religion has just developed over time anciently as a way for people and society to sort of cope with a world and a life that stinks. That if you can think about something that's outside of this world, if you can train your mind and your brain to do that, well then, well then you're going to be feeling better each day. Um, Philosopher Karl Marx uh, once wrote, many of you know this quote from the mid-1800s, he said that religion is the opium of the masses in the sense that it's kind of like a drug. It leads you to forget what's real, to ignore the reality of life. That thinking, that sort of idea has found its way woven through all generations, not just today, all generations throughout history. That idea, that religion and a thing about God is, is not a, a real thing. And if, um, if you want to believe that, that's fine. If you want to believe this Easter thing and pretend like you're, oh, happy day, well, that's fine. But I live in the real world, they say. And you can go do your Easter thing. Let me tell you this something that I want you to hear and to know. The thing that I'm so excited about this message for right now is that when it comes to truth, that type of thinking is an ignorant caricature of why we've gathered here today. Is an ignorant caricature of what truly is the hope for Christians. So, let me start with this it's really important for us to know exactly what we're celebrating today. We're not celebrating church. We're not celebrating God in the general sense. We're not celebrating religion. Let's be really specific as we appeal to our minds. Today, Easter is the celebration of an event. So, about 2,000 years ago, there was a man who lived named Jesus. Even secular scholars admit and recognize that the idea of a man 2,000 years ago named Jesus is accurate and true. The evidence is undeniable, biblical and secular. And what they also agree on is that, because Josephus and others wrote about this, that he ended up dying at the hands of the Roman government, that he was crucified, that he was hung on a cross, and that he was buried. What we celebrate today is the belief, the knowledge, the understanding that he didn't stay dead, that he rose from the dead, that there's an empty tomb. 
Now, the words we're going to look at today for our encouragement um, were written by a pastor in the first century. Um, his name was Paul. And in fact, he wrote about 70% or so of the New Testament. And he planted a bunch of churches. He would start churches. Then he would travel, start another church. And then over time, he would end up writing a letter to the churches that he started to kind of help guide them in their thinking. And sometimes there was controversies going on. There was a church in the city of Corinth, this is the area of Greece around the Mediterranean Sea, that were having some issues with the resurrection. And so Paul wrote to them about just that. Their resurrection someday and the resurrection of Jesus. And, and here's how he started. 1 Corinthians 15, verse Verse 3. For what I received, this is a message, a knowledge, I passed on to you as of first importance. What he's saying here is this there's a lot of things I taught you, there's a lot of things I've preached, there's a lot of things I've written. But if you were to ask me what the most important thing is of all of it that I've preached and written about and talked to you about, it is the following that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. And as the Christian church began to grow in the midst of immense persecution in the first century, look it up in the Bible and in other places, the most difficult time in history to be a Christian, that first century, this was their credo. It was based on this. This was their statement of belief. It's summarized here that Jesus died and was buried. He was raised and appeared. Jesus died and was buried. He was raised and appeared. Now, is there more to God? Yes. Are there other important doctrines to think about and to talk about? Absolutely. But if you want to know my heart, if you want to know where we're coming from as disciples in the first century, they would continually go back to these phrases that Paul wrote about because it was of first importance. Jesus died and was buried. He was raised and appeared. Jesus died and was buried. He was raised and he appeared. It's this idea that the resurrection of Jesus and what happened on what we today call Easter, is at the centerpiece of everything we believe. You know, um, some of you wonder about a uh, six-day creation, because as you study science and everything, it just doesn't seem to mesh really well. I get it. I understand. We unpack some of that at starting point, but I get it. Some of you um, wonder about how a loving God could sort of encourage so much killing and violence in the, in the Old Testament. I I understand. I, I wrestle with that too. I, I, I get it. I get where you're coming from. But here's what I'll say. While those things are important, and I love debating, I love talking about them, when, when we understand what happened on Easter, all of those other questions become a little bit smaller because they are not at the crux of what we really need. They're questions. But the main thing is this. What happened on the third day after Jesus died? And why is that so important? Well, here's what Paul says as we jump ahead to verse 17. First of all, he writes this. If Christ had not been raised, 
If Easter didn't happen, if Jesus stayed dead, because we all saw him die, we even know the two people who buried him. Their names were Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. If Christ, though, had not been raised, if the tomb wasn't empty, your faith is futile. It's worthless. It's unimportant. We can debate all we want about six-day creation, all these other things you have questions about. But if he did not rise from the dead, if Easter didn't happen, it's, it's meaningless. It's, it's worthless. Because here's what the truth would be. You're still in your sins. Because nothing would have really changed for you when it comes to life after this one. Now, this is a pretty major phrase here. And we don't maybe catch it right away in English, so let me tell you what it means in the Greek. It doesn't just mean that if Christ had not been raised, you'd still sin. Well, that's true too. It says, if Christ had not been raised, you'd still be in your sin. You'd be living in it. You'd be enveloped by it. If Christ had not been raised, the best way to define the world, the best way to sort of describe who we are, the most accurate, realistic description of us would be not good person who kind of does bad things sometimes, but the exact opposite. Bad people who have a tendency, the natural inclination of their hearts towards evil. And sometimes they might do good, but even that sometimes is done for evil, selfish reasons. The motivation isn't always as pure as we'd like it to be. Let's talk about intellectual reality for a second. So when it comes to the way we intellectually think about ourselves, I feel like the intellectual, secular world is too easy on us. What we hear is that we're good people. I don't think it's that pretty. Let me spend a moment in your brain and heart for a moment. If we were naturally good people, then it would be really, well, in essence, easier to do good. Because that would be our nature. Um, if, if we were by nature good people, then, well, counselors would have it easy. If you had a problem, needed to work through something from the past that you did, you just, you know, call up the counselor, sit down, tell them everything that's going on, what you've done, all that stuff. They're, what do they do? They like take their notes or they just look down. I don't know, one or the other. But they're there, they're, they're listening. And then when you're done talking, they'd put down their sheet of paper or their clipboard, and their advice would be this. Stop it! And that should be good. That'd be not, I mean, I could be a great counselor. You would not need to pay money. You could just come to me. I can tell you to stop it. It would be a whole lot cheaper, wouldn't it? And a whole lot quicker. But you and I know it's not that easy. Here's reality. We struggle every day with things in our brains and in our hearts that expose the depths of our sin and our waywardness. Someone once said it this way, we don't even live up to our standards, much less God's perfect standards. I mean, the reality, let's talk, we're talking, the reality is we're worse than the world says. By nature. That's our second fill in. The reality is our problem is 
deeper than we'd like to admit. And intellectually, we kind of gloss over this, and we, we kind of do this. We, we find the person in our life that is worse than we are, and then we hold them up as an example of why we're not that bad, because it could be worse. <laughs> we try to make up for things to make us feel better, but even then, as I said, our minds and our hearts betray us. And let me ask this, what's the result of a world filled with people whose inclination is towards evil and selfishness? <laughs> empties. That's the reality of why there's empties in this world, why that video is true. Because the world is filled with people like me who have trouble doing the right thing and loving and forgiving and trusting and serving. Paul continues, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. It's worthless. You're still in your sins. Then, if that's the case and Christ wasn't raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, and I, I love how so often in the New Testament, uh, the writers use the phrase, fall asleep for death. Uh, be, I, it indicates when you sleep that you wake up. It's kind of that way of indicating that death is not the end anyway. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost if Christ had not been raised. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, the most to be pitied. You know, have you ever wanted Jesus to be the savior of the difficulties you're going through right now? Yeah, like all of us. And sometimes he will. Sometimes your will lines up with God's will. But sometimes it doesn't. And what Paul is saying is, if Jesus was just a savior of my problems right now, savior from my illness, a savior from my debt, a savior from me not finding a partner to spend my life with, or whatever it might be, if that was it, that we are, of all people, the most to be pitied because all that stuff goes away. And even those who are healed, someday die. <laughs> you know, this, this being pitied thing, that it, it, one commentator that I was reading about, he, he compared life when it comes to if Jesus was just about this earth to um, throw pillows on your bed. Here's how. Because, I don't know, so any of you have throw pillows? Guys, like, come on, yeah, you know that we have that same problem, right? And what happens with throw pillows is you take them off, okay? Put on, and then what do you do in the morning? You put them on, right? Maybe, right? And then you take them off, and then you put them on. And, and, and the weird thing is, like, when you go to bed, that's usually when you need pillows, but these pillows make it uncomfortable to sleep. So they're on there, and we don't even spend time in our room, but we have to put them on and take them off and put it— I mean, why? Guys, why do we do that? I don't—I mean, I know why we do that, but why does—anyway, I digress. What Paul is saying is, if our hope was just for this life, all the things we did, all the things we pursued— if it was just about this life and there was no life after death, it would be like throw pillows, just running around, 
rearranging the de- chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> you still know how it's going to end. Next verse. But. And uh, I was going to, like, have this little joke about how um, there's some big butts in the Bible, but I figured it was Easter, and... <laughs> I wasn't going to use that joke, so I'm not going to say that. But in this verse, Paul has a big butt. I mean, this is probably the biggest butt he's ever had in his letters. Because after 12 verses of talking about if Christ had not been raised, if Christ had not been raised, if Christ had not been raised, he says, but, and the whole tone of the chapter changes right there with that word, that word of contrast, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What that means, that weird phrase, it doesn't seem to make sense at first glance, is that just like the, the, the first olive is the first one to be pressed and there's more that comes after it and that first fruit, that best grapes are pressed first, so also the best, the most important That first resurrection was the proof that there was other resurrections coming afterwards because he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead, and that man being Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, that man being Jesus Christ. We are worse than we even think we are. That's the reality. But the reality is this, that the reality is that our rescue was and is the only way. See, what we recognize is that while God is love and God is forgiving, you can never forget, intellectuals, the other side of God. He is also holy and just. And so when it comes to a relationship with a holy and just God, he is only able to have relationship with those who are holy and just. And when we sinned as a, as a, as a people, and when we sin daily, there's this, there's this on our own, this break of the relationship. The relationship is broken with a holy God. So what do you do? Now, have you ever wondered why the whole cross and the resurrection thing? Why didn't God do just what we do as parents sometimes at home? Just say, I forgive you. That's enough. You know, let's, let's, let's try again. <laughs> it's because he is holy. Let me give you an example. When I was a, a teenager, I kind of scraped the side of my dad's car. And thankfully, he forgave me. But... In order for the car to be fixed, someone had to pay for it. In forgiveness, he did not make me pay for it. But in order for it to be fixed, he needed to pay for it. That's the reason for the cross thing. That's the reason for a perfect substitute. A holy God could not just turn his eyes from sin and pretend like it didn't happen. There needed to be payment. It's just that he didn't require us to pay for it. He sent someone to pay for it for us. His son, our Savior, Jesus.
the empty tomb is the proof that Jesus' payment on the cross was accepted and that someday we will rise again from the dead as well. Now, the resurrection's a big deal. How do we know that that happened? You know, this is why I love this section from Paul. Because he appealed to our hearts. But at the very beginning of this chapter, he also appealed to the minds of the Corinthians. You see, to believe that someone could self-resurrect themselves was a hard thing to believe 2,000 years ago. Just like it is today. And so here's how Paul started that section. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We read this. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's kind of harkening back like, you guys should know this stuff. Like, this didn't just happen. It's been talked about. And that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. Now, why the appeared part? We talk so much about the death and the, re- the rising, the death and the resurrection. Why the appeared? Why was that part of the credo? Because it was in the appearing that people who had trouble believing someone could rise were proven to them that it was true. See, I I can't prove history. You can't really prove a lot of history that you believe. I mean, I can prove to you that I'm wearing a blue tie. I can can prove to you that breakfast this morning is crintastic. All I need to do after the service is take you over to the, over to, or it's over now, I guess, but take you to breakfast, have you try it. Man, good. It was awesome, right? How do you prove history? You prove it through witnesses. You prove it through historical evidences. Paul is appealing to people's minds because he knew it would be hard to believe. And so he's like, guys, he appeared. You know, know, Peter, you've heard of him. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12, verse 6. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. There's a whole group of people that he appeared to. Have you ever wondered why he stuck around for 40 days? This is the reason. He wanted to grow people's trust by taking something that's hard to believe and letting them see. Now, this next part is the part that I like the most says, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So like, for us, this is context 2,000 years ago. It is clearly evident that this letter, we know this historically, was written in 55 AD. That's about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. What Paul is saying is, if you do not believe this thing about the resurrection, that the tomb is empty, Go to Jerusalem. Go across the Mediterranean Sea. Walk around the city. There's a whole bunch of people walking the streets of Jerusalem who saw him die and now saw him alive. Go ask them. Because as he appeals to their hearts, 
He's also appealing to their minds. That while the resurrection of Jesus seems so much like a miracle, because it was, it's a miracle that history supports and one that people saw him alive after he died. So, what does all this mean as we close? Over the last few weeks in our series, All the Feels, uh, kind of unplanned, the movie The Notebook was mentioned like two or three times. Well, I figured might as well cap off this whole time frame at Easter by one more notebook reference, but I, I recognize that some of you maybe have never seen the movie, so let me just explain to you kind of the cliff notes of it. So the movie The Notebook is about a, an elderly gentleman who goes to a nursing home, and he goes there to read a love story to an elderly woman who lives there. Um, That elderly woman has Alzheimer's disease, but every day that this man comes, she's looking forward to him coming. She's yearning to hear more about the love story. And as he tells the whole story, at the very end, what you discover, what you find out, what the movie kind of lets you in on that you didn't know before, is that the woman in the love story was in fact that elderly woman that was being read to. That it was her story. And that the man was her husband. And when she got, when he got to the end of the story, those of you who saw the movie, you know, this is like a little bit of tear time or whatever. For a moment, she was snapped to and realized that that story was her story. That's my prayer for you today. There's songs and chocolate bunnies and eggs and peeps, but at the heart of Easter is the story of a resurrected Savior and that that story is not just a story. It is your story. And here's the thing, guys. Jesus' empty tomb fills your emptiness. How do we get to Oh Happy Day? I'll be honest. Some of you maybe will never sing that song. You're just going to listen along, right? That's okay. But how about the Oh Happy Day of our hearts and of our lives? It's knowing that in good times and in bad, in healthy days and even in the face of death, that because the tomb is empty, We have hope that someday we know ours will be as well, that we have a home in heaven waiting for us, and that that truth, that promise, blows up all the empties that we face in life and gives us the ability to find joy in the good days and in the bad, all because the tomb was empty. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving these words of Paul over the last 2,000 years and uh, for giving us an opportunity to gather around them, to understand them better in context and uh, to recognize the hope that he gave those Corinthians is still uh, truth and hope for us today. Dear Lord, uh, the reality is, is that I'm worse than I'd like to think I am. We have a room filled with sinners. 
But Lord, that reality, that truth does not need to overcome us, does not need to make us worry about a relationship with you or about eternity, but instead, it is the evidence of our need for a Savior. And may today be a celebration of a new life and a new hope. Pray all this in Jesus, our Savior's name.